This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So Attorney General William Barr, we know, said that uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller recounted 10 episodes of potential obstruction by President Trump, though Barr saying that there was evidence that Trump had non-corrupt motives. Let's get into this. Uh, A lot certainly has been reported and written uh, so far since uh, that uh, press conference this morning by the Attorney General. Anna Edgerton is congressional reporter at Bloomberg News in our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C., along with June Grasso, legal analyst and co-host of Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law uh, on Bloomberg Radio. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. I do want to first start with the law. June what what came out that is of legal importance today? Well, I'll, I'll tell you that you mentioned non-corrupt motives, which William Barr said this morning that there was evidence of. And I think it's striking when you start to read the report how how his interpretation is so different from what is stated in the report and from what Mueller Mueller and his investigators seem to have come to, because Mueller said that Trump engaged in targeted efforts to control the investigation. And you can see that, for example, uh, former White House counsel Don McGahn quit after Trump told him that to tell Rosenstein that Mueller had to go. There are several examples of Trump trying to stop Mueller, have Mueller fired, stop Comey. And at one point, McGahn said, I don't want to be involved in another Saturday Night Massacre, referring to mm-hmm. the fact that Richard Nixon asked then-Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire Archibald uh, Cox, who was the independent counsel, and he refused to. There are so many instances of this in the report over and over, including what's gotten a lot of uh, attention, which is he said, you know, when he learned that the Mueller was investigating, was, was, excuse me, when he learned that Mueller was going to be investigating, he said, this is the end of my presidency. There's a lot of evidence in it, and I'm disappointed that the attorney general took the tact that he did. So... That's the legal side. Let's briefly move over to the political. Anna Edgerton, looking at all things political down for us in D.C., helping helm our coverage. Obviously, if you're on one side of this, you feel a certain way. If you're on the other side, you feel the other way, Anna. And this didn't do much to convince anybody of much of anything if you're really dug in, right? That's exactly right. And unsurprisingly, we've seen a pretty partisan reaction to the un- to the redacted version of this report. And Democrats have said that they share some of those legal concerns that we've talked about already. They're looking at these 10 episodes of possible collusion and really questioning why Barr and Rosenstein came to the conclusion that there wasn't sufficient evidence for obstruction, where it seems like Mueller was laying out legal theories that could have supported an argument for obstruction of justice. They have also drawn attention to the differences between the way Barr has presented this report and also the content of the report itself. And the initial reaction that we got was 
was to Barr's performance. He kind of made himself a protagonist in this day by giving a press conference at 9.30 this morning before anyone had actually seen the redacted version of the report. So there's been a lot of criticism from Democrats about the way he has handled that. Republicans, on the other hand, have cheered him as a public servant and said Barr has done a good job of balancing the legal restrictions on what can be shared with the need for public transparency. So you can see the two teams lining up on their sides, and this is certainly not the end of the partisan bickering over this Mueller report. Well, and we should point out that uh, Congressman Jerry Nadler is expected to address reporters pretty soon. We'll bring you the headlines uh, as he talks about that. So I guess, and let me put it out to both of you, Julie, let me put it out to you first, is that, okay, so the Attorney General came out early this morning. We all thought it was an interesting timing, right? And some speculated that this was a way of controlling the message ultimately. It's 448 pages. There's lots of information in it. Um, What will ultimately be made known to the public? I mean, how much will be redacted so that ultimately what will the public be able to read and assess and make their own decision on what uh, Mr. Mueller found? You know, I think there is enough here already for the public to make a decision, to look at this and make a decision about it. Now, as far as how intelligence committee and if you're looking into national security and surveillance things like that then you probably need to get the grand jury material that's been redacted because a lot of this has been redacted as far as the grand jury material which mm-hmm. is not allowed to be shown to the public unless there's a special circumstance and a court rules it so for that I think those people are going to need to see that but the public I think you can get a pretty good idea of what right. happened Anna I'm also curious curious how, you know, this is a a very political story. Um, And as you said, depending on which side you line up on, how do the Democrats kind of need to be careful in how they proceed? We've had these discussions about, you know, the Democrats, you know, not losing some of their juice and maybe, you know, just going after the president versus trying to get some other things done. So what do the Democrats need to do from here on forward? That's been the challenge, especially for the House Democratic majority, the whole time that they've been in the majority this year. They've been trying to balance their constitutional responsibility for oversight of the executive branch with trying to make gains on their agenda. They, Of course, all members of Congress are looking forward to their next election for representatives in the House. That's going to be in 2020, along with President Trump. So there's certainly political points to be made here about just how unprecedented this president's first term was. And along with some of the elements that brought him to the presidency. I mean, there was a very detailed accounting in Mueller's report that we saw today about Russian interference, even if the president's campaign didn't participate in that. So there's going to be a lot of subpoenas that follow this report. Uh, Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, has said that he's going to subpoena not just the unredacted version of the report, but also the underlying documents. At the same time, other committees that don't have to do with intelligence or justice will be looking at other elements as well. Anna Edgerton, congressional reporter, deputy team leader for our congressional coverage down at Bloomberg News in Washington, D.C., joining us from the nation's capital. And June Grasso working her tail <laughs> off today, trying to make sense of the legal aspects. She's also the host I know what of she's Politics, be doing this Policy, weekend. Power, and <laughs> Yes, law. line by line, word by word, cutting and Bloomberg. pasting. <laughs> Hopefully, no matter how much money we have, we think about giving back. We think about giving a little bit of it away or a lot of it away, depending on uh, what you got. Uh, 
And we're always looking for advice on exactly how to do that. Yeah. And as you said a couple minutes ago, Carol, you know, there is maybe a misperception that you should give the way you invest. Well, that's the subject of a new book. It's called Giving Done Right, Effective Philanthropy and Making Every Dollar Count. The author is Phil Buchanan. He's the president for the Center for Effective Philanthropy. He joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Phil, great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me, Jason and Carol. Well, it's a great book and very thought-provoking. What made you write it in this way? Well, I've been working for 18 years with some of the biggest donors uh, in the country and in the world, uh, both individuals as well as institutional foundations. And I've been both inspired by the good that can be done by effective philanthropy, but also frustrated by seeing people make the same mistakes again and again. And one of those mistakes is to think nonprofits are like business and philanthropy is like investing, and neither of those things are quite right. Why is it important to make that distinction? Well, for one reason, the way you measure performance is completely different. So uh, you and I, at the end of the day, can compare investments in very different uh, businesses and very different industries by common metrics, um, profit, return on our investment. Uh, But if we make a grant to an organization working to improve high school graduation rates, and they do by 10%, uh, and another one working to reduce CO2 emissions, and they do by 10%, we can't put that into some kind of common unit of measurement. So it's just a much trickier uh, game to assess how things are going. Uh, and, of course, nonprofits are working on the, on the toughest issues almost by definition, the ones that have defied market uh, solutions or government intervention. You know, Phil, I think one of the things so many people think about, especially the wealthiest among us, is, all right, I've got this money to give away. There are so many options out there. How do I pick or how do I even come up with a working list to pick from? What do you do? Yeah, it's super tricky. I mean, it's, uh, you know, first of all, you've got to figure out you know, what, it, what it is you care about. And I, I encourage people to use their head and their heart. Uh, Sometimes we can look and see, you know, why is it that uh, donations are pouring in uh, right now in France, you know, to rebuild a beautiful cathedral, but but we had a a cyclone, you know, hit um, uh, Mozambique and wreak incredible havoc, uh, and we didn't get that kind of response. So uh, you want to want to try to think about, you know, where can I do good. Uh, and then identify organizations that are clear on what they're trying to do, and it's aligned with what you're trying to do, clear on how they're trying to do it, and have some information uh, to provide that suggests how they know whether they're making progress or not. So that's that's in broad terms some advice I'd give. You know, Phil, and sometimes I feel like, you know, we will it down to, we've done a lot of stories about um, kind of ratings that are out there that really take a look at how much money you donate and how much actually gets to the organization versus uh, or or to the intended cause versus the overhead and all that good stuff. To me, I feel like that's a very good starting point and basic metric. Yeah. And so I'm going to disagree and say, I think it's not usually a helpful metric. Really? So why? Okay. Yeah. Because I think it can be uh, first of all, overhead is a really difficult thing to define, and and, and so the way it gets uh, defined across organizations is not that consistent. But if by overhead we mean things like, um, you know, salaries or the rent that the soup kitchen has to pay, um, I think those
those are just as worthy as support and are crucial for the organization to do its work. And so my advice is to look at results and performance relative to goals uh, and trust the leaders of the organizations to figure out how to allocate that budget. And if they think that they got to pay a little more to get the best talent to do the work uh, or they've got to invest in technology, those are judgments that they should make. So I actually, you know, talk a bit in the book about how I think overhead is, is generally uh, not a helpful measure. And, and actually, you know, there's been some research by a woman named Caroline Fine to the UK on some international nonprofits that showed a correlation between between higher overhead and effectiveness. <laughs> That's really interesting. they were investing in the things that they needed to do to really be excellent in their work. It's really, really interesting, and you raised so many uh, good points. I highly recommend this book, Giving Done Right, Effective Philanthropy, and Making Every Dollar Count. Phil Buchanan, he is the president for the Center for Effective Philanthropy. He joined us today on the phone from San Francisco. Very thought-provoking, I have to say. I I really dug this book. Yeah, it's really kind of cool, and I just think about, you know, there's so much information out there, so much data out there, that if we can figure out a way to make it, in terms of philanthropy and our donations, much more effective, right? Yeah. That's a good thing. And to be thoughtful about it. And I think, you know, some of the most philanthropists, and we know some of them, Mm -hmm. are very methodical and really uh, think through it. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We've been talking a lot about Blackstone. Big story today. It's one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg, in part because of earnings, in part because of getting over $500 billion in assets, but also a conversion to a corporation from a partnership. And you had a great interview today. Well, thank you. I did catch up with Steve Schwartzman. Here's what he had to say. What jumped out at you the most about this first quarter? Well, the first quarter had uh, remarkable money gathering. Uh, You know, we raised... $43 $43 billion in one quarter. If you annualize that, uh, it would be half the size of any other uh, uh, firm in our industry right. in, just in one year. Uh, so uh, we, we've raised $126 billion uh, in, in the last 12 months, uh, which is like an out-of-body experience. When I started the firm uh, uh, back in the Middle Ages, um, we, we worked a year and a half, uh, and, and we raised $850 million, and then we had nothing else to raise for subsequent years until we did the next fund. And so what accounts for that? I mean, what accounts for this continued, just voracious appetite for these types of alternative assets? Well, what, what accounts for it are great returns uh, with, with what's historically been very little risk. And, and so in our opportunity uh, type of uh, products, uh, we've historically made about double the stock market uh, without losses. And, and, and so why would you not put more money in an asset class like that? So let's talk about those individual investors because you want more of them to invest in your stock. You made the decision to convert to a corporation. That really caught a lot of people's attention. Aries, KKR had done it. You guys had studied it for a while. Why now? Well, the, the reason right now uh, is, is by studying it, we learned some interesting facts we probably should have known before. Uh, you know, in the United States, there's about $12 billion uh, of, of assets in the money management uh, business, of which uh, that's for mutual funds uh, and index funds, and only four and a half trillion out of that 12 trillion can buy us right uh so we've like handicapped ourselves 
with our corporate form. Uh, by changing just the form, uh, we'll pick up another four and a half trillion, doubling uh, the amount of, of, of money that, that can buy uh, our, our stock. The same type of thing has happened abroad, and that's not in that uh, uh, 12 trillion. So we're going to pick up a lot of buying interest there. Uh, and then for the regular investor, this is all triggered uh, around receiving something called a K-1, right. which is a tax form that's, that's, that's very cumbersome as opposed to a 1099, which people are used to getting. Uh, and, and so uh, we'll make this easier for retail investors uh, in the United States. So as you look around, uh, our ability to reach uh, a, a dramatically larger uh, audience and, and for people in my position, when we go out to, for example, a mutual fund, uh, we'll have a lovely right. meeting and, and two people will say, I can buy your stock. And eight portfolio managers say, geez, I really wish I could, but we... Right. They just, they they just, just can't do it. So, they just came for the sandwich. Right. So, so, so the moment uh, is, is now uh, and uh, corporate tax rates are lower in any case. Um, and, and, and so it, it, we think uh, that even though it'll increase our taxes a little bit, uh, you know, it's worth paying more taxes for the benefit right. for our shareholders, you know, to, to have much bigger uh, potential audience to buy. And I believe they will. Well, they certainly seem excited about it today. That yeah. was Steve Schwartzman uh, talking about his investors that shift to a corporation from a partnership. Let's understand what else was going on uh, with the earnings. Heather Pearlberg, our crack private equity reporter down in Washington, D.C., she was all over the numbers, this conversion, following all things private equity. Hi, Heather. Hi. Uh, so what do you make of it? What do you hear Schwartzman say, Schwartzman and John Gray, because they talked to investors and journalists uh, after we did that TV hit? They seem positive about most things. I mean, Schwartzman just was rosy, right? He was happy about converting to a C-Corp. He felt like everything was going to work out with China. Uh, we're not headed for a recession. So it seemed like he was having a great day. And then he crossed half a trillion in assets. So that's a, another record broken for Blackstone. And, you know, it's fascinating, right, to just see the amount of money that uh, the private equity industry, uh, Blackstone among them and others, just the amount of money that they've been raising. It is. It's amazing. And then the question is, can they spend it all? Um, John Gray has kind of famously said, you know, people are giving us this money and trusting us with this for a long time, and we don't have to spend it immediately, so we can kind of wait for the right situations. But it's they're building this sort of huge war chest, and there are limited opportunities out there. Uh, you know, not as many public companies, uh, higher prices, so deals are harder to come by. So, Heather, I want to go back to this conversion to to a corporation for a second, in part because you've written a lot about this. You talked to a lot of experts. We saw Aries do this, make the same conversion. We saw KKR do the same conversion. What's your sense of, A, why it took Blackstone so long to to get there? Because clearly investors are are loving it, uh, and Schwartzman seems happy about it, as you mentioned. And and two, does this sort of – does this indicate that, that we'll see others go this route? 
I think, well, answering sort of why they waited so long, um, Aries did go first and then KKR, but there's no real first mover advantage, right? Like Blackstone doesn't gain anything by getting out the door faster. You can only do this once, and it's a huge deal. So they were kind of studying what everybody else was doing, looking at the shares, looking at the number of kind of mutual funds that moved in. If you look at KKR now, Vanguard is its second biggest holder. So that's that's huge. And they're looking at all these things, looking at all these data points and thinking, okay, I guess it's time. So they moved. And yeah, I do think you'll see others do it as well. Yeah, that's what I was curious about. You know, what happens to the rest of the industry? I mean, everybody's got to watch one another, right? Especially um, the bigger players, Heather. True. And it doesn't, I mean, this doesn't guarantee them spots mm. in the indices. It sure makes it a lot more likely right. that there are other things they kind of need to do at this point to guarantee that that happens. Then you also have the question of what happens in a couple years with the Democrats? Will they be in power? And at that point, will they bump the corporate tax rate up a little bit? Yep. Yeah, great point. All right, 30 seconds uh, to go. What do you think is the biggest existential threat to private equity right now as you listen to Blackstone and and the others as they come out with their results and and you talk to them? I think reputation at this point. These guys are so big, and they're probably going into an election year with a target on their backs. They've just created massive amounts of wealth and, you know, success is going to come with some criticism. Right. It's a great point. And, you know, I think about one of the stories uh, that came out late in the day yesterday talking about increased SEC scrutiny on the leveraged loan business, Mm -hmm. which obviously Mm -hmm. is largely populated by these non-banks. It came up on Capitol Hill uh, last week as well. Well, Heather Pearlberg, private equity reporter for Bloomberg, a busy day for you. We know. Thank you for spending some time with us just taking a quick look at blackstone shares they are up about 8.8 percent i believe they are close to if not eclipsing an all-time high right right and i think one of their biggest moves in a couple of years so pretty remarkable you are listening to bloomberg radio a little more cowbell everybody uh, so listen, now coming to a streaming service near you, it's a new murder mystery. It's called The Killing of Inflation. Kidding, kind of, sort of, not really. Economics editor Peter Coy wrote the story uh, about something that has the Fed economists and market watchers really scratching their heads, and that is the lack of inflation so late in our cycle and especially amid a tight labor market. Let's get into this with Christina Lindblad. She's global economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek here along with Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Okay, Jason makes fun of me because I say when I use the word sick, but your cover is really sick, the animation that's online. Yeah, you, you could go to the uh, go to the Business Week Instagram account for the best way to see it and make sure you hit the sound on so you can hear this inflatable dinosaur go... <laughs> and reveal great. the cover line, which is, is inflation dead? Christina, is it? Um, it looks dead. We haven't seen a pulse since, I think, a few years. I think 2% annual, the Fed's 2% annual target. We 2% hit it is once. the big number That's in right. inflation land, That's right? right. Not just in the U.S., in Japan, right. in Europe. Well, this is a global phenomenon. That's one of the things that makes this cover so interesting. And it talks not just about what's happening with the Federal Reserve, but all these central banks trying to figure out what they should be doing because the old rules and the old playbook don't seem to apply. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that people are starting to think about is that this is actually outside 
central bank's control. Yeah. That we've been used to thinking about inflation as first and foremost a monetary phenomenon, right? But now that actually may be a structural issue. There may be things happening, trends that unfold over long periods of time that actually that are actually to blame and the globalization, capitalism even. Technology. Right. Uh, and, I, you know, one thing that I think is interesting, yes, it does affect, it's a global phenomenon, but this is really a thing that's more uh, pervasive in developed economies right yes. now, right? Yeah, like, that's Obviously, right. like, Venezuela, Argentina, plenty of inflation Turkey. there. Yeah, yeah. Turkey, <laughs> they are not lacking inflation, they, that's They true. got it. But <laughs> I, that's what's frightening is that the places that have been able to basically say, we, we've got this thing under control, no longer seem to have a under control. Well, and the troubling part is, right, if we start to have the economy start to stumble, one of the key mechanisms for the Fed to help juice the economy, they're not going to have that anymore, Christina. That's right. I mean, that's a really scary part. Right now, we're just watching something that we don't understand. But if we get in trouble again, you know, the mechanism is usually lower interest rates below inflation. Uh, how are you going to do that when already interest rates are very, very low? Um, that's, that's the rub. And what becomes even more fascinating about this is the political implications for central banks. Yeah. Because if central banks can't get inflation to sort of do what they want it to do, why do you have a central bank at all? Right. Okay. So I want to pick up exactly on that point because one of the things that Peter raises in this story is maybe this whole idea of central banks and governments, they need to operate separately. We obviously have an administration in the United States that maybe isn't so enthusiastic about central bank uh, independence. So what does it mean? Are we in an era where we may see some more cooperation here? There are a lot of calls from, I think, research papers in academia, people looking, Larry Summers is one prominent person, looking at you know whether there should be more coordination. And, and I don't mean seed all central bank independence, right. but some. So fiscal policy, I think a lot of people are agreeing, is going to have to play a big role in sparking inflation again. Um, and you and so I think a lot of central banks, uh, I mean, you know, the ECB, even Powell have said, you know, we've done what we can. Over to you now. Yeah. For years we've been saying that. Another yeah. thing that Summers, um, Peter quotes Summers saying in the article is that this could be around for a while, this, yeah. this stubbornly low inflation. Like, get used to maybe a decade or, or more, or more yeah. of it. Well, and it's important to note that this isn't necessarily a partisan issue. Let's remember, Larry Summers was the Treasury Secretary under President Clinton. He's just calling it like he sees it. Yeah. Right? So so I, I think that is what, when we kind of talked about um, what we're going to put on the cover this week, you kind of bring all this together. Uh, Trump's obviously made, President Trump's obviously made some recommendations of people he'd like to see on the Fed, which other people weren't less than thrilled about. And so you bring in the question of central bank independence and then inflation, which for, for years, I mean, you talk to a certain generation of Americans and like inflation's a boogeyman, right? Mm-hmm. And the boogeyman sort of disappeared. And we've almost done such a good job of making the boogeyman disappear that there's all these other boogeymen that start to become consequences of that. Well, and let's not forget, right? A certain amount of inflation, this is what we want in an economy. You don't want it too high, but you don't want it too low. Yeah. What what does Peter call it in the story? The grease? Oh, the grease. The the grease of capitalism. Yeah, you need a little bit to grease business, to grease commerce. Yeah. 
Well, I have to say it is a fantastic story. Well story. told, well edited, well <laughs> illustrated, well covered, all of it. Uh, it's the cover story in this week's Bloomberg Business Week. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Christina Lindblad, global economics editor for the magazine. Check out that story on newsstands and also on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. What's the sound the dinosaur makes as it deflates? Oh. Okay, just making sure we got it right. Just so you know, I didn't do it, although that was as good <laughs> no, as it is. No, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Thursday, getting ready to wrap up the shortened uh, trading week here in the United States ahead of the uh, holiday, the Easter holiday over the weekend. Uh, So right now we've got equity averages just coming off their best levels of the session. David Dietz is with us, founder, president, chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management, $342 million in assets under management. He joins us uh, once again on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. David, uh, nice to have you here. So uh, this is kind of a funny environment. It's funny. We have our our market guys. We kick off our broadcast, Joe Weisenthal, Dave uh, Wilson. And Joe often this week has come in and he's like, yeah, it's kind of a quiet week. I mean, it's it's an interesting week right now. Where are we? What's the investor psyche right now? Well, that's that's a great question here. So I do think it's kind of a high-stakes moment in the market because you've got a great performance, one of the best starts of the year ever, where we're up 15 to 20% on the major market averages, yet at the same time here in the most important metric for valuing stocks is the earnings they generate. And we are bracing for earnings to be negative this quarter, um, as much as down 4% year over year, maybe a little bit better than that. So you've got this conundrum of higher stock prices, lower earnings. And so investors want to know, where does this shake out? Well, and we've gotten a mixed picture a little bit from, from earnings, right? You know, I mean, uh, you know, Dow, Walgreens, the banks, J.P. Morgan seemed really good. Then Wells Fargo, maybe not surprisingly, didn't seem so good. So who's got it right, or is this just a stock-by-stock story in this market? Well, I think one positive aspect to the whole thing here is that I think the earnings outlook got so pessimistic that the bar was set so very low that what we are seeing, which is giving some support this week to stocks, is companies coming in and doing better than expected. So we had been projecting S&P down 4%. Now I think uh, macro analysts are saying we're only going to be down 2.3%. And we are seeing some bellwethers. For example, you pointed out J.P. Morgan today. I thought Honeywell, which is a real bellwether for the industrial area, came in with um, great earnings. But of course, as we all know, it's not necessarily what they reported last quarter, but it's all about the outlook going forward. And that indeed is murky. 
So let's talk about some of the names that you uh, actually like in uh, this universe right now. Wells Fargo is one of them. We did get that uh, company's uh, earnings um, and their results. Uh, The stock really has been under pressure, concerns about all the problems that the bank has had over the last couple of years, uh, new executives and so on and so forth, uh, new CEO uh, waiting on that. So what's your thinking about Wells Fargo? Well, you know, here in this dicey time here of higher valuations, we're looking for the bluest of blue chip franchises, which at the same time is sharing some of the profits with the shareholders. So here's Wells Fargo. I can't think of a better banking franchise on the planet. Why is that? Because they've got the coast-to-coast covers. They're number one or number two in over half the markets they serve. Unlike, you know, some of the money center banks, they have steered clear for the most part of capital markets activity, which is uh, very cyclical. They're focused on that middle market. They're focused on the retail banking. On top of that, the mother load in banking is to have those insured deposits yielding close to nothing, but people like them because they're safe. Wells Fargo leads the brigade with that. So, of course, you've got a great franchise, but the stock was as high as 65 last January, so it's down more than 30%. You've got a dividend approaching 4%. That's 40% more than the 10-year Treasury, more than double the S&P 500. So what's the catalyst, um, Carol? Quite simply, naming an acceptable CEO, I think, could lift that stock up 8%. And if it's really well perceived in Washington, D.C., you could see a 10 to 12% bump just on the announcement of that CEO. Provided no new scandals come up, right? Because they've had years well, of scandals. Yeah, there's always a risk in any stock out there. But here, I think... Well, well but, 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 but David, to be fair, they, yes, any stock is at risk of having some kind of scandal. But they've had numerous scandals and they've had their CEO come out and say, everything's fine, we've got it, we've got it under control, only to have new scandals come out. Well, so, so here's what I would say. First of all, I think a lot of the pessimism is now built into the stock, so the downside risk should another scandal come out from the woodwork is going to be less than the potential upside if someone is announced who they feel has the integrity, experience, leadership qualities to set the ship right. Um, and, of course, think of all stocks, of course, always look forward. They don't look back. So anything mm-hmm. that comes out now can be conveniently said to be in the legacy management, which is now off the table. Yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, CVS because, man, healthcare related stocks this week and last week have just been getting pummeled over this fear about managed care and Medicaid for all, Medicare for all, excuse me, healthcare for all, Obamacare, whatever happens next. What we know is investors are freaked out, at least in that part of the healthcare uh, sector, which is traditionally a defensive place, a nice place to hide. CVS, did they get tarred with that, or are they outside of it? They have certainly got tarred with that. Here's a stock that's about $52 a share, down from 100 more than four years ago. But let's look at the macro scene. We've been in this business for a while. We saw this with Hillary Care. We saw this with Obamacare. Periodically, there are proposals, often aspirational, to make you know, fundamental changes in the whole health care system. Now, it may work out that way, but I think at this point, again, the downside risk should anything material develop is a lot less than what usually happens. It mm. becomes 
business as usual, tinkering with the system, not changing it. CVS is at the heart of where I think healthcare could be going because they're now vertically integrated with their acquisition of Health Insure Aetna, and now they're developing these health hubs, these minute clinics. So basically, they're like your local Urgicare. So it's a one-stop shop. You get the appointment on a walk-in basis. It's less money. They can provide the pharmaceutical stuff and also um, handle all the insurance paperwork. But their PBM business, that's really where you've seen uh, the majority of the growth or the higher growth among their businesses over the past three years. I mean, this stock is still down about 35% from its high back in November. But if there are significant changes in terms of reimbursement, um, I'm thinking pharmaceutical reimbursement or pressure to bring down drug costs, this, this could hurt them even more, no? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I guess I come back to this idea that a lot of the concerns now I believe are priced in okay. while you're waiting for some clarity. You may not even get it till 2020. You're collecting a near 4% dividend. And again, you're working with a market leader. So the same problems are going to affect all the players in healthcare. But when you have uh, the uh, CVS with 10,000 pharmacies across the country, 20 million healthcare members processing 1.4 billion prescriptions a year, I think you've got the staying power to allow things to shake out. Um, and however it works out, I think they could be a longer term winner. David Deeds, founder, president, chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management. Joining us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Enjoy your long weekend. Always great to catch up with you. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.